Thank you guys um, for coming out this morning and just worshiping with us. Um, I want to let you know that when I first started dating my wife, um, it was kind of uh, uncomfortable for me because she was the first person that I ever dated as a Christian. And prior to that, the only thing I cared about um, in a relationship was what I could get from that person, not what I could give to that person. Um, I was not the kind of guy that you would want to be with. Uh, I was manipulative and a jerk and a punk, and um, I really didn't care anything about um, anyone else, just cared about myself. And so dating Carrie, it took me about eight months before I even gave her a kiss on the cheek. Eight months. Eight months. She even came up to me one day and said, Mike, do you even like me? Like, I'm kind of confused. I'm not looking for like, you know, I'm just like no, nothing. Like, you don't even... And, I did like her. I was just terrified because I didn't know um, what relationships looked like that um, were caring about the other person. And so with that became a pretty funny reputation at work. I was a mechanical engineer. I have a bachelor's degree, had a bachelor's degree. I haven't used it in many, many years uh, from Alfred State College in mechanical engineering. And so um, at my, one of my jobs that I had had as an engineer, um, as a Christian, the people there were very confused about what a Christian looks like when they're dating because they knew that I was saving myself for marriage and um, Carrie and I were, um, you know, very careful about what we did um, in that regard. And so um, they were intrigued by it because it was kind of, their minds were blown. I was an anomaly to them. Uh, if you don't do that in a dating situation, then what do you do? And as a joke one day, I said, look guys, when we're walking around the mall, we are holding hands the whole time. There is not a moment that we don't hold hands. That's, 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 that's our style. And so um, over time, they started to make fun of that, and uh, they made uh, business cards with my name that said professional handholder. Um, they sent emails out to the whole company uh, saying, be careful, don't hold Mike's hand because he might cheat on his girlfriend. Uh, little things like that that were kind of humorous. Uh, that's the softer side of things, but um, on a more um, significant level, there was a, a time when we were doing a project, and I was the project manager, and there were lots of parts coming in from all over the place, and we would bring them to our warehouse where we would assemble them, and one of the companies was late on getting their stuff to us, which meant nothing could, go, nothing could leave our, our warehouse. And so I was given the task of emailing the client who I was working with uh, to let them know that we did send the parts out, we did send the fixtures out, um, assembled on a truck, but the truck broke down and we have to order a new truck and they have to move all of these heavy fixtures from one truck to another, so it's going to take quite a long time to do this. It wasn't our fault, we didn't really know this was going to happen. Of course, this was a big fat lie because the parts were in our warehouse. And I was very convicted by this. I, I, li I told my supervisor, I can't do this. I cannot knowingly send an email to this client straight up lying to them. And they said, you need to do this. You have to send this email. It's important. We can't lose them as a client. They're a multi-million dollar client and you're the project manager. And I'm like, I, I, you got, it's balls in your court. I can't write the email. So my, the president of the company comes in my office, closes the door and goes, Mike, if you don't write this email, you're going to be fired. And I was like, I guess you're going to have to fire me because I just can't do it. I just couldn't consciously make a decision to flat out lie to this client. Um, and lo and behold, uh, he wrote the email. I didn't. And he got caught in his lie. She found out later that he lied. She called him and said, the only person in your company we're going to deal with is Mike, if you want to keep us as a company. So she may have saved me my job. But 
Now, you can clap all you want, but I would be lying to you if there weren't some moments in that situation where I was thinking, is this worth it? Like, I'm going to lose my job over a dumb email? Just because, like, I'm going to put my family in this situation where I'm jobless because of one email? And I was thinking, he's the one, his conscience has to deal, I'm just following orders. His conscience has to deal with this, not mine. I'm just going to do what he says and wipe my hands of it, but I just couldn't do it. And while that's a great success story, believe me, I have a ton of other stories I could tell you that were not so great, um, but I just wanted to illustrate that the culture around us is very influential, and what we refuse to do sometimes is looked at as stupid, idiotic, dumb, unintelligent, unwise, not beneficial for society. There's another standard of living that a lot of people use that can begin, if we're not careful, to seep in to our heart and begin to dictate the way that we're going to respond to it. So in the end, the culture affects all of us, and there's so much pressure to do what it says and to assimilate to its ideals. And I'm sure you have your own examples of failures and successes. Our text today illustrates this on a massive scale. We're going to get a glimpse of exactly following that path of assimilating into the culture, what that's going to look like in the end. So we're going to read Judges 10.6, and we're going to read all the way to 12.7, 58 verses. You're welcome. Welcome to Family Sunday. This is a challenging text, by the way. There's a lot going on here. So let's start. It says this in verse 6, The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and the Ashtoreth, and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand, that you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go out and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, And served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife 
also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not inherit, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now, so that you, may, so that you will go fight with us and against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me? that you have come to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Eden would not listen. And they, and they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the, and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Hezbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to, your, to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the land of the Amor- Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Shemash, your God, gives you to possess? And all that our Lord, all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Hezbon and its villages, and Aroer and its villages, and, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the God of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah, that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the 
the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you have become a cause of great trouble for me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, and I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did what was according to his vow that he made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Chapter 12. Seven more verses. We're getting there. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed the Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come to me this day to fight against me. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, you are an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of Jordan, at, of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gilead died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Let me just say that I'm really glad I don't have to say any of those words anymore. Some of them are big. All right, so what the heck is going on here? What is the situation? Um, we're going to kind of take a 30,000-foot look at this, and then um, we're going to kind of swoop in and get, uh, and get real close to some of it. It's impossible to go through um, everything that's going on. This is a huge text, so we're going to look at the mega themes, uh, and we're going to kind of uh, just hone in and see what we can glean from this. Um, the first thing I want to tell you is the story should not and will not be about Jephthah. It's a story about who God is. It's a story about who God is to his people not about the failures of Jephthah, uh, Jephthah, but about the promises and the unfailing love of God. 
So uh, chapter 10, we're leading up to this verse. There's two judges that ruled. This guy Tola judged for 23 years. He dies. Then Jair judges for 22 years. Then he dies. So after he kicks the bucket, we see in verse 6, Israel starts once again to serve other gods and worshiping the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, and Philistines. And the anger of the Lord is kindled, um, and so he sells them into oppression. For 18 years, they're oppressed uh, by the Philistines and the Ammonites. They finally cry out after 18 years of oppression. They finally cry out to the Lord to help them. But God says, wait a minute. Guys, I've delivered you from everyone in your grandmother. There's, and you still forsake me. You still walk away. There still seems to be other gods that you would rather serve. So serve them. Go ahead. We're not playing this game anymore. In fact, God says, go crawl to those other gods and ask them for help. You seem to love them so much. See what they can do for you. And Israel says, we've sinned. Do to us whatever you need to. Just save us. We're desperate. And they finally begin to put away their foreign gods. They stop serving them. They stop worshiping them. And they begin to worship God alone. And so God can't stand to watch their suffering any longer. And he raises up this new judge to battle their oppressors and defeat them. Now, it's important to note here that a judge is not what we would typically think of. If you haven't been here during this series, we've kind of talked about this. A judge here um, in the book of Judges is, uh, don't think of a courtroom, uh, think of a battlefield. Don't think of a courtroom facilitator, think of a uh, military leader. They held swords, not gavels. They wore, uh, they wore armor, not robes. They fought physically with their oppressors. They didn't discuss it in a courtroom. And so while all this is happening, though, meanwhile, the Ammonites are gathering an army to attack Israel. So who's going to lead them? Well, I'm glad you asked. There was this guy named Gilead, and he cheats on his wife with a prostitute. This prostitute has a son, and they name him Jephthah, which means to open or release. And little did anybody know at the time, but God was planning to use Jephthah, for just that reason, to release his people out of oppression. That was his purpose. That was what God was going to use him for. And Jephthah's half-brothers, they don't want his little grimy paws on their inheritance, so they boot him out of the house, get out, go find someplace else to live, because you're worthless to us. We don't want you to get your hands on the things that we want, so leave. We don't want you here anymore. So he leaves. He ends up living in the hills and become, becomes known as this mighty warrior. And I don't, it's not really a good kind of warrior at the time. Um, it's, think of like mafia warlord. And he's got his cronies with him. All these guys that are walking around with him on his coattails and trying to get the scraps of his spoils of war. So years later, the Ammonites are about to attack Israel. And because Jephthah has made a name for himself, his brothers ask him to come back. They have the nerve to ask the guy that they kicked out to come back and help them. Before he was worthless, now he seems to be worth something to them. But Jephthah's but Jeff like, uh, oh, you want to be friends now? I'm, oh, I can, I can come home now? Hmm, that's interesting. And they're like, please, please come home. We'll, we'll let you lead over us. How's that sound? If you come and help us, you can lead us. You can rule over us. So he agrees. And not to mistake this with a change of heart, Jephthah's motivation is not he's into saving them. He's really into helping himself because with this agreement secures him a political position which will get him more wealth than the uh, inheritance that he was gypped of earlier would have gotten him. And he's going to lead and rule over the people that kicked him out. He's loving this deal. The desperation of Israel, 
he is taking advantage of. Don't let him, he's, not, he's not doing this out of the kindness of his heart. So then, um, in order to avoid war altogether, um, he kind of tries to go diplomatic, and he sends letters to the Ammonites, and um, to the king of the Ammonites, and asks, he's like, what's the deal? Why are you so angry? Why are you coming to attack us? Explain this. I don't understand. And basically, he says, because you stole my land. And Jephthah's like, nope, I didn't, actually. Uh, God gave it to us, and you never had it to begin with. So you need to back up. You need, you need to slow down, my friend. You're, 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 out of, you're out of hand here. This is not your land to decide what you want to not want to do with. And so ignoring his historical smackdown, um, he basically, the king of the Ammonites basically goes, neat, all right, prepare for war, because we're coming. I don't care what you have to say. I don't care about all your little historical data. I'm coming with an army. So um, Jethro makes this insanely rash vow to God, promising to sacrifice whatever comes out of his house if he gives, if the Lord will make him victorious. Now, I guess at least he's acknowledging that it's the Lord that's going to make him victorious, I guess. I'm just trying to find something good about him. At least that, I guess, maybe. But uh, the Lord does deliver the Ammonites into Jephthah's hands with, as it says, a great blow, meaning this is a slaughter. This wasn't even close. So that settles that dispute. So he heads home triumphant. And as he comes home, he's waiting to see what's going to come out of my house. He remembers the vow. I'm, I'm sure he's watching to see what comes out. And his daughter comes racing out of the house. She's dancing. She's singing. She's got tambourine. She's playing music. She's celebrating his return and his victory. But his heart is low because he knows the vow he made to God. Now, it's interesting because she seems to take the news pretty well. Do to me what you have vowed. And then she asks for one thing. She wants to go up and down the mountain to weep over her virginity because, you know, she's going to be sacrificed, so that makes sense. Culturally, it does actually make sense, but to us today, it seems odd. Jethro agrees, you know, what father would deny his daughter a pity party in the mountains with her friends, right? So after two months are up, Jethro's daughter returns and keeps his vow, offers her as a sacrifice. Now, admittedly, my jovial tone here is kind of ruining the scene. This is tragic. This is the person that God has called to defeat the oppressed, to defeat those that are oppressing Israel, and he's making this tragic, horrible decision, this vow that he has made. We're going to discuss it in a few minutes in more detail, but just know that it's tragic. It's unneeded and unnecessary. So as if Jethro didn't have enough on his mind, the tribe of Ephraim in chapter 12, which hadn't even participated in the battle, by the way, gets all mad at them for not including them in the fight. So Jethro's like, bros, you gotta be I invited you and you ignored me. You stayed home. I did, I did invite you. So he gathers an army of Gileadites and gives Ephraim a whooping. For, for the defeated Ephraimites to escape. Now, for them to go back to their own land, the Ephraimites, they have to cross um, a river crossing that's now controlled by Jephthah's men in the Jordan. So they need to try to pass themselves off as non-Ephraimites to get past Jephthah's people. So the Gileadites come up with a test. You have to say this word, Shibboleth, which actually means river in Hebrew. And if you can say that the right way, then you can pass because the dialect of the Ephraimites couldn't pronounce the sh sound. 
So they would consistently say Sibboleth because they couldn't do it. And that would give them away. So this speech impediment would give them away every time. And 42,000 of God's people were killed by God's people. This is the first time in the judges, in the line of judges, that peace did not um, occur at the end of the judge. There's civil unrest and civil war. This is how far down the line. Now, if you remember when we started with judges, we said that every judge that comes after every judge gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And now there's not even peace at the end. Now there's civil war, civil unrest. This is significant. Now, a reminder about the pattern. We're going to swoop in and kind of look at something that I think is important for us to look at today. Just a reminder about the pattern um, that emerges in Judges. Israel begins to worship false gods. Those nations of the gods that they worship begin to oppress them. Then they cry out to God for help. And then God sends a deliverer, a judge, to battle their oppressors, to defeat them every time. Because it's not really the judge that's doing the fighting. God's fighting, right? It's not, it's not the judge that's winning. God's winning, using the judge. And um, then the judge dies and then they go right back into idolatry, worshiping false gods. Then it all repeats. So here we are. As we get into this narrative, right in the first verse, verse 6, there's all these gods that they are beginning to worship. Syria, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, all these gods. But I think the most tragic part of all of this, the most brutal, the worst part, is at the end of verse 6 that says, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They're, they're not just serving other gods along with God. They're only serving other gods. He's not even in the mix. They've abandoned him. They have forsaken him, left him out. The culture has so um, inundated in their heart that they only worship that which the culture worships. This is bad. And what's God's response? Have it your way. Not to be confused with the Burger King slogan. Way before Burger King was around. In fact, Burger King stole it from God. No, I'm just kidding. So when God sells the Israelites into the hands of the Philistines, it doesn't mean he abandoned his promises. It doesn't mean that he deserted them. They had forsaken him. He did not forsake them. That is an enormous, huge thing that we have to understand today, that God did not forsake them, even though for 18 years of their oppression, they had forsaken him. He's basically saying, you want to serve something other than me? You think there's something better out there than me? Are my boundaries and commands, are they burdensome to you and you think there's a better life out there for you? Okay, try it out. See what happens. And they're in oppression. So clearly it's not working too well. Now, this is not an emotionally charged reaction. We're not witnessing a cosmic temper tantrum. God isn't a seven-year-old going, I'm not going to serve you if you don't serve me. He's not doing that. He is making a calculated and intentional decision to not share his people's hearts with anything or anyone else. He wants their hearts, and he wants all of their hearts, the whole thing. 
He's saying everything you serve will other than me will only destroy you. I will always and only bring you to a place that I have designed for you, blessing, eternal life. In the end, God wants us to hate our idols as much as he does. That's a powerful question for us to ask this morning. Do we hate our idols as much and as deeply as he does? Let's pause here for a moment and consider something. Do you hate that which robs your attention from God as much as he does? Do you even know what those things might be? Maybe you're a workaholic because your identity and value is wrapped up in your career. Maybe that's the God you serve. In fact, maybe you use God to try to get further along in your career more than allow God to speak into it and call you to what he has for you. Maybe you long for a relationship so badly that you can't stand the thought of being alone. And so you're consumed with it at an unhealthy level. What could God, listen to this, what could God be allowing in your life so that you can experience the futility of it and grow to despise it because it does nothing good for you? For me, it's technology. Let me ask you some questions that I ask myself constantly. What is the first thing you pick up in the morning when you wake up, a Bible or a phone? What's the last thing you look at before you go to bed, Netflix or the scriptures? Don't hate me. This is going to hurt a little. Ready? I'm going to put my shield up. When your phone distracts you right here in church, do you really think that whatever you're doing in that moment is better than what God wants to do in your heart? through his word? It's not, by the way, in case you were confused by the question. It's not a trick question. Whatever you do in this place, other than fully give your heart and attention and affection to the person and work of Jesus, is ruining the experience that you're supposed to have. Every time, all the time. No ifs, ands, or buts. No excuses. Have you bought the lie? Do you really think you're still paying attention? Do you really think you're, micro, you're multitasking? Remember, God is not interested in sharing your attention or your affection. So after 18 years of this oppression, the Israelites finally cry out. And God's response is, nope, you've forsaken me. You're on your own. I will save you no more. Now, this is a challenging response to stomach because it doesn't really portray this loving and merciful and great God that we seem to have culturally built up, that God is always, only, always nice and kind. And it's kind of like a Yoda meets Mr. Rogers sometimes, like really wise and speaks in strange languages, and, but it's always nice. Discipline is always good, but it doesn't always feel good can ask any of your kids that are here with you if they enjoy your discipline. And if they say yes, then they're nuts. However, God knew something that we don't. He knew that the cries of his people were not anchored in their renewed relationship with him, but they were simply desperate pleas to get them out of their oppression, to end the suffering and to find relief. That was it. 
They were not interested in serving God. They were interested in God serving them. And in fact, in this moment, they're actually treating the one true God like the Canaanite gods among them because they were trying to say the right thing, do the right thing, say the right prayers to try to get God to act. And God knows it because he's all-knowing. He knows their heart. He knows what they're trying to pull. And he needs to wait. He's waiting. And he's disciplining them to show them that that's not what he wants from them. So in other words, they're sick of the consequences of their sin, but they have no sorrow about the sin itself. So, here's, here's something you need to understand. God is a jealous God. Now, don't mistake that. He is not jealous of you, as if you have something that he lacks and he wishes he could get it. He is jealous for you. Husbands, wives, to find out that your spouse is with someone else. Some of us have experienced that and it's, it's tragic and it does something inside of us. Something happens. Why? Because we're jealous for them. We want to be the one and only. We want to be the only one that they, that they come to like that. They want, we want to be the only one that they think of in that way. That's our God. He's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. God needs to be our one and only, not our one of many. Let me say that again. God needs to be our one and only, not our one of many. So eventually they relent and they get rid of their foreign gods and worship the Lord alone and they, they seem to be repenting. They seem to be getting it. They're recognizing the futility of their idols. And so enter Jephthah, God's chosen person, to deliver them again. God keeps raising them up. But it goes without saying that this dude's a hot mess. The most tragic part of the story, though, is that God, the God of Israel, became so unfamiliar to the people of Israel that Jephthah didn't even know that the very vow he was making was detestable to the God he was making it to. They had grown so distant from God that they literally forgot who he was. So Jephthah makes this vow to God because he has been so influenced, to, influenced by and assimilated into the culture around him that he no longer knows the character of God. Deuteronomy 12.31 says that God finds this detestable. It's an abomination to him. Human sacrifice, God wants nothing of it. He's not looking for us to... You know why? Because human sacrifice was something that identified you um, with, a, with a foreign God. That's what other gods wanted. Prove to me how much you love me and sacrifice your, ch your children. So, what was Jephthah doing in this moment? He was treating God like he would treat his foreign gods. Wrong vow to the right God. Wrong vow to the right God. You see, a Canaanite guy would be impressed with this. Wow. You mean it. That's what the false worship of the community was doing. But the God of Israel was disgusted by it. And he had no clue, no idea that this was even something God wouldn't want. So the death of his daughter is horribly tragic and completely unnecessary. Now, I don't know if you notice the similarities between the Israelites' conversation with God in chapter 10 and the one they have with Jephthah in chapter 11, but it's actually pretty cool. When the, Gilead, when the Gileadites ask Jephthah to come back and help them, he makes them beg a little with a little more humility. 
Just like God asks a second time and doesn't initially give them, um, uh, doesn't initially save them. He only signs on the dotted line when they agree to his rule because his rule has to come, with rescue comes rule. If you want me to rescue you, I have to rule over you. Now what's really cool, unlike Jethro, we have a ruler and a king who is Jesus. He didn't do it out of a motivation of self-preservation. He did it out of a motivation of our preservation. Tim Keller states this, God's leaders are types who, point, who each point to his greatest judge, the Lord Jesus. The way people treat Jesus is the way they are in fact treating God. You cannot respect God or truly repent without acknowledging the right to rule, to rule of Jesus. You cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. See, we mourn over the death of Jethro's only daughter, but we rejoice in the death of God's only son. Her death was tragic. His death is glorious. Her death was the result of sin. His death is the saving of our sin. With that, I want to ask you a couple of questions. The first one is this. Is Jesus your king? Do you accept his rule as you embrace his salvation? Because they both come together. Maybe a better question is this. Where is Jesus jealous for you? Where are you sharing his rule with something or someone else? Where are you taking shortcuts because it's just easier to not have to deal with the culture to have to explain yourself? And Again, I have a lot of failing stories that I could share, but I'm really glad I didn't send that email and I was willing to embrace I was willing to embrace being fired if that's what it took. I have no idea why looking back because it seems crazy. But clearly, if I had done that, I, have, I would have sinned. You cannot, you cannot have Jesus' rescue without accepting his rule. The second question I want to leave you with is this. What are your blind spots? See, Jethro didn't even realize what he was doing was wrong. He thought he was doing something right. He had bought so far into the culture that he thought what he was promising to God is what God wanted to be promised. So I'm going to ask you an impossible question to answer, but you'll understand why in a moment. How has the culture influenced you in ways that you're unaware of? You can't answer it because you're unaware of it. <laughs> That's how bad it is. You aren't even aware of how far away or how inundated with the culture you've become because it's normal now for you. It's a normal life. It's how you function. And to think of functioning any different, if somebody were to come up in your face and begin to say, hey, this is not really the way that you're supposed to be living, you would probably fight against it because what you're doing has been so normalized and, and, and such become the standard of your life that no one can speak into it anymore. So here's how you answer the question. See, there's times that I'm driving that I might have to ask Carrie, my wife, if it looks like her lane's good to, to move into because I can't see everything. I have to watch it. So I'm like, hey, can you just check and see if that lane's okay? Why? Because her vantage point is better than mine. So if you really want to know the answer to this impossible question for you to answer alone, you need to find someone who you trust and respect and ask them to answer it for you if you have the guts. I double-dog dare you to ask somebody this week, where do you see cracks in my character that I don't seem to be aware of? 
Where do you see me making excuses for my behavior opposed to confessing and repenting from it? In what ways do you think I could mature in my walk with Christ the most? And if you end up doing this, you have to accept that which is given to you. Find someone you trust that will love you through it, that will care for you through it, but will be honest with you as well. That will be honest with you. Here's the deal. We are far more easily influenced by the culture around us than we are affected by the Bible in front of us. There are times that we are exhausted by life. Sometimes we make poor decisions. There are times that we are spiritually inept and just struggling to serve the way we know we're supposed to serve. And it would be a mistake to think to ourselves, man, I hope I don't become like Jephthah. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to try really hard to not become like Jephthah. I'm not going to let the the culture influence me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. Because the story isn't about the failure of Jephthah. It's about the unfailing love of God. This is not a story about being careful of the vows you make. It's about resting in the security of the promises that God has made to his people. It's not about trying really hard to forsake him, or not to forsake him. It's not about trying really hard to not forsake God, but flat out knowing that he has never and will never forsake his people. That's what this is about. Put your eyes on him, not on this. Let him dictate, let him rule, let him say, let him have last say, first say, and every say in between. And if you can do that, you'll rest. You'll rest. Jesus secured every promise God makes. Jesus secures it. So Jesus is the king we need. You're not trying to be King Jephthah. You're, re- you're relinquishing your kingship and rule over yourself and allowing God to rule over you. Every stiff arm you make is a mistake. Every excuse you come up with is wrong. Everything in this book guides us, shows us, reveals God to us. I'll ask the questions again. What are you sharing your rule with? And where are your blind spots? Think about these things. It's not about Jephthah. It's about God ruling in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as your people we can rest in your promises that have been secured by your Son. That we would not make the mistake of making this story about anything other than you. But that we would also recognize that we have blind spots. We have ways that we are living that are normalized in our lives and need to be seen as the idols that they are so that we can forsake them to better and more deeply commit ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that you would expose those things to our to our hearts. I pray that you would reveal them to us. I pray that there would be people in our lives who would speak truth to us and that we would adhere to what they have to say to us when we can trust that the Bible and scriptures are their, are their guide. If there's something that we should do today, God, it is repent. 
It is not try harder. It is not do better. It is not to be aware of what we could become. It is to just repent and come to you. You are our king. You are our savior. And you are our rescuer. May we fully rely, fully rely on you alone. In Jesus' name.